welcome to the Bioinformatics Zero podcast. My name is Grace Ratley, and today I'm joined by Dr. Joshua Hare, who is Professor of Medicine and Director of the Interdisciplinary Stem Cell Institute at the University of Miami, as well as co-founder and Chief Scientific Officer at Longevron. Welcome, Joshua. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about Longevron and the therapies that you're working on. Longevron is a biotech company devoted to solve diseases of aging and aging-related conditions. We founded Longevron in 2014 with a license from the University of Miami for technologies related to using cell-based therapy to treat a condition called aging frailty. Uh, since then, Longevron has branched out to also focus on Alzheimer's disease, the metabolic syndrome, and as every good rule needs to have an exception, our exception is a disorder of neonates. So we're an aging-related company with mostly aging-related conditions and a, and a program we're very excited about for neonatal congenital heart disease. The technology is based around a cell-based therapy that is a culture-expanded product that comes from healthy bone marrow young healthy donors give their bone marrow and we have shown that this product can be used as an allograft and doesn't require immunosuppression. So that's a adds a very big feature of convenience because it's an off-the-shelf product and therefore gives a great economic uh, scale. Sure, and, and the cells that you're working with are um, mesenchymal stem cells. Can you tell me a little bit about those and, and why you chose mesenchymal stem cells as opposed to other stem cell types? Well, first of all, whether or not they should be called mesenchymal stem cells is highly controversial in the scientific literature. And just in the interest of time, I think we can stay away from that controversy. But because of that, we don't call them mesenchymal stem cells anymore. There are other names that have been given to them to maintain the MSC um, ab abbreviation. So two other names that some people use are mesenchymal stromal cells or even more away from that is medicinal signaling cells. So three versions of what MSE could stand for. You know, those of us in the field kind of chuckle a little bit because it's the kind of thing where whatever you call it, we all know what people are talking about. But a huge amount has been made of what to call this cell entity because of the debate of really about what a stem cell is. And so, some purists feel that if the cell doesn't engraft and differentiate, that it should not be called a stem cell. And, you know, I can, ag I can agree with that. I think it's really more semantics than anything else because we've been using this product for decades now, literally decades, without the expectation that it would engraft and differentiate. So it's not like we're making something up in terms of what the mechanism of action is. But we can agree also to uh, not call it a mesenchymal stem cell. Now, as we're a biotech company and are making a product that we're trying to get through regulatory agencies, it has to be given an official name anyhow. And the name that our product has been given is Loma Cell B. So we refer to it as Loma Cell B right now. Now, in terms of why we chose to go this route, I'm a cardiologist, I'm an expert in, in heart transplantation. I've been working on cell-based therapy for 20 years now. And 
I started to work in the early part of last decade on this particular type of product, trying to understand particularly the immunology and then the reparative capability of the product in heart disease. I studied it extensively in animal models. And then very early on in the life cycle of human trials, I was one of the first in the United States to give it to people with heart attack. We started doing that about 2005. The reason I've stuck with MSC work is very, very simple. And some people misunderstand this. I've stuck with it because the data I've been getting has been positive. Now, some people debate that, but the fact of the matter is I've done a large number of clinical trials in human heart failure, and our results have been interesting and provocative and have warranted further, further work in my view. Now, we, we sort of pivoted away from heart failure alone to the whole body when we started to look at aging frailty because of very interesting observations we were making in patients with heart failure their whole body was getting better, not just their heart. So the cells, which have, an, have four basic actions that we know about, none of which is related to being a stem cell. So this is why I think that what you call it is much ado about nothing. But we know and we've documented that the cells have an immunomodulatory effect. They have an antifibrotic effect. They have a provascular effect which is multifaceted, and they stimulate endogenous repair. They themselves don't engraft and differentiate, but they can create tissues that have stem cell compartments and have proliferative ability to undergo a reparative process. And we've known about that for at least 10 years. When we looked at uh, what was happening to people with heart failure, we saw that things like their quality of life and their six-minute walk distance was improving. So there were effects at their whole body. We then went on to show that endothelial dysfunction was also improving. And endothelial dysfunction is a very important part of heart failure and aging. So with all of these things we were seeing in heart failure patients, we said, we got to try this for aging frailty. And there was one more important piece of the puzzle which was in our heart failure population, we looked to see if age was a factor. Were older people not responding as well as younger people? And in fact, we found that older people and younger people were responding the same. So it became very logical to then say, okay, aging frailty is a major worldwide problem. It's characterized by a lot of the things that affect heart failure patients. Let's see if we could try this product in patients with aging frailty. So tell me a little bit about aging frailty. What are some of the symptoms of that? And how do you differentiate it from the normal aging right. process? Your question is great and hits the nail on the head. We, ha we have this unfortunate view in, in our minds because it's just the lens we see through right now that aging is inevitable and that an aging decline in function is inevitable. That's not true, by the way. We, but that is our view because that's our world experience. What we also know is that some people are aging more successfully than others. We all know two 80-year-olds or two 75-year-olds, one who's doing great and the other who isn't, right? Everybody knows that. But 
we believe and we accept because you know that the old joke the only two thing the only two guarantees in life are are death and taxes so we all know we're going to die and we all know that we're going to age and we all know that we are aging right now every day is a, is a day we're a day older it's this issue about how what our quality of life is and our function, functional capacity is at the end of life and this is where there are misconceptions and so it's a very important field in geriatric medicine, the study of aging frailty. And what, what's been shown is that, in fact, some people are aging successfully and others are aging unsuccessfully. And the people who are aging unsuccessfully have a greater vulner vulnerability to diseases. And it's gone so far that there's a new hypothesis in medicine right now called the geroscience hypothesis. The geroscience hypothesis holds that aging is the number one risk factor for all other diseases. So some are advocating that we should be focusing on treating aging as the pathway to treating heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's. So we, I've been familiar with this literature and this science for a long time, and it made a lot of sense to me to apply MSCs or Loma Cell B to people with aging frailty because it's a major unmet health need, it's biologically based, and therefore it's amenable to be treat treated. We also know what causes aging frailty, right? It's, um, it's low-grade inflammation, it's endothelial dysfunction, and it's sarcopenia, which is a loss of skeletal mu muscle. So these are processes that are biological processes and can be addressed. And it made sense to us what we had observed in other patient studies was that Loma cell B might be an effective treatment for aging frailty. I am curious as to how you hope Loma cell B will be used. Since aging affects everyone, do you hope that, I guess, what, what are the indications that it will be used? Like, will you give it to only people over the age of 65 who meet a certain criteria, or do you hope that it'll be more of a commercial medicine product? How it'll be used will be determined like every medicine's use is determined, and it's determined by regulators. And very typically what happens is a, a manufacturer of a drug negotiates with the FDA or the uh, the uh, European Medicines Association or the the agency in uh, in Japan, where whatever country you're in, and you sort of pre-negotiate the in indications, and then you have to do studies to prove that in that setting the drug works. How I hope it'll work is not really up to me. It's up to a very open dialogue between Longevron, the company I co-founded, and regulators. Now the big challenge is that these regulatory authorities have never approved any drug or any treatment for aging frailty. And because of this whole issue of the controversy about whether is it an actual disease or not, right? So there's a lot of new ground being broken here. There's huge interest in anti-aging therapies and geroscience therapies. And this is something that's really coming to the forefront right now science and medicine is really shifting its attention to understanding and acknowledging that aging is a biological process and should be treated and that great benefits will accrue to society and the individuals and families who are affected. So 
How it actually gets used will be will depend on the study that we do. And what, what we've completed right now is a phase 2B study. It was done in patients between 65 and 80. Depending on how the FDA views that study and tells us what to do next will determine of, of how it'll be used, the age range, the indications, and so on and so forth. That's really exciting. Congratulations on uh, your completion of that phase. Um, and I, I wish you the best going forward. Do you have any idea of um, when you might expect it to hit market? Well, we have to, at a minimum, do one, if not two, phase three studies. And we have to negotiate with the FDA what the endpoint of those studies will be. We're not even sure that they'll say you can go ahead to phase three right now. They might say, do another phase two. We, we just don't know until we talk to them. Our plan is to talk to the FDA with the data that we have now and make a determination. If we go to phase three, we'll be able to, at that point, just decide with, with the FDA's advice what the endpoint should be and how long the trial will be. So the, the time to market depends on how big that study has to be. If we could get away with a, a study of just hundreds of patients, it'll be much quicker than if it's thousands of patients. You know, <laughs> the funny thing is, I've been working in this field for 20 years, and we keep saying it's five years away, it's five years away, it's five years away, and every five years comes ticks by, and we still say it's five years away. That's the problem with any new field. It takes a long time. A brand new idea like this can take anywhere from 30 to 40 years to, to get proven and accepted by the general community. So you're collecting these cells from young, healthy donors from, from the bone marrow. I know there's a general shortage of people who, who donate bone marrow for, for other uses, um, like uh, cancer therapies and, and whatnot. How do you think you'll overcome that? One of the great things about the allogeneic technology is that one donor can, can generate enough material for hundreds, if not thousands of doses. So it's not one donor, one recipient, the way it is for bone marrow transplantation for lymphoma or leukemia. This is a culture expanded product that we culture expand in a specific lab called the GM, uh, a GMP lab, a good manufacturing process lab we can generate thousands and thousands of doses from a relatively few number of donors. Now, in the future, one of the main focuses of the company is to scale this up. How do you know if this gets approved for aging frailty or Alzheimer's disease? I have to tell you a little bit about Alzheimer's disease. These are major unmet needs and we're going to need huge amounts of material and we're going to have to address a scale up plan and we are in the midst of doing that right now i can't tell you anything about it because it's all on the drawing board but if you invite me back in a year or so hopefully i can tell you a little bit more about the scale-up plan we'll certainly have to have you back on but uh yeah do tell me a little bit about uh its application in alzheimer's disease yeah so if people really understand and study what we've done they'll see it's very logical and systematic I told you how we went from heart failure to frailty. It was based on observations in the heart failure population 
the biology and preliminary observations. So it made sense to do it. It wasn't just throwing spaghetti at the wall. And the same with Alzheimer's. What we noticed was in an earlier frailty study we did, we also measured, we did a crude measurement of cognitive function, which is a, a simple test you can give to a patient called a mini mental score. And the mini mental score improved in the patients who received the predecessor version of what is now Lomas LB. And we were like, whoa, that's surprising. That, was, that wasn't expected. Then we, when we spoke with experts in the field, they also informed us that indeed there was a hypothesis that made sense, which is that there's inflammation in the brain in Alzheimer's patients, and that might go unaddressed by some of the other approaches that were being developed. That's called the, the neuroinflammation hypothesis. And with all of the troubles in the Alzheimer's field, there's been a huge shift towards looking at neuroinflammation. So knowing how our cells work, you remember I told you the four things we know about Lomas LB, anti-inflammatory, antifibrotic, provascular, and stimulation of endogenous repair, plus the observation in the, in the earlier study that there was an improvement in the mini mental, it may, again, make total logical sense to go ahead and try it in a small Alzheimer's study, which we did. We were very fortunate that the Alzheimer's Association funded it under a part of the cloud grant, so I wanna acknowledge them. And we did a 33 patient study that's been published in the journal Alzheimer's and Dementia, which is a journal of the American, of the Alzheimer's Association. And the results were really, really interesting. Of course, they're preliminary and provocative. It's just a phase one study, but we did show safety. But from a preliminary standpoint, we saw suggestions of efficacy and they seem to be meaningful. So Longevron is presently enrolling in a phase two study. And one of the things that is really amazing about uh, cell-based therapies is the safety of it. Can you talk a little bit about that? So I have a general prediction, and I believe that over this course of this century, and it's always good to look back 100 years, and sometimes it seems like not much changes, but if you look at medicine over the past 100 years, it's been incredible, the changes. We didn't even have antibiotics 100 years ago, and now we've got hundreds of different antibiotics and heart failure drugs. I mean, there's now eight or nine different classes of, of heart failure drugs, cancer chemotherapy, and so on and so forth. My general prediction for the 21st century is that cells are going to be, become much more commonly used as medicines. We've already started. We've already, that, that process has already begun with a type of cell therapy called CAR-T therapy, which is a very effective way to engineer T cells and use them to kill a variety of cancers and leukemias and lymphomas. And these are approved. I think cells are going to generally be used as medicines for a whole host of indications. And one of the main reasons is safety. I think if you have a situation where you could cure a disease with medicines or you can cure it with cells, the cells are going to win out over the next four, five, six decades. Why? Because I think cells are going to be much safer to use. 
think about it as a smart bomb or addressing something surgically than with a, a sledgehammer. So I've told you these four things that the MSCs do. The cell is a living thing. It doesn't just go in there and do that everywhere. It just goes to the area of injury and just does what's needed to be done at that site. So that gives it a, a balanced action. And also they have a very long standing action. So for example, in the Alzheimer's trial and in the frailty trial, we gave a single dose of the cells to people at the beginning and followed them for nine months in the frailty and 12 months in the Alzheimer's. And those effects from the single dose were still accumulating nine or 12 months later. So incredibly safe, incredibly effective, long lasting. I think it's, I think it's going to overtake medicines in, in quite a, quite a few areas. Once we really figure out how to engineer the cells better for each specific thing we want them to do. Yes, I, I'm very excited about it as well. I, I hadn't learned very much about, about these therapies before this interview. And at first I was a little skeptical. I was like, that sounds kind of ridiculous, like injecting cells into someone's blood and just like seeing what happens. But I mean, the more I learned about it, you know, I, I'm really excited about it. So um, so let's get into a little bit about about you and your journey to, to Longevron and, and to science. So, so tell me about when you first became interested in medicine. I became interested in medicine very, very early on in my life, around the time I was 13 years old, when I was in the ninth grade. I always loved science. As a kid, I loved science. I loved chemistry and electronics and biology. I was fascinated by animals and I put it all together by the ninth grade saying, hey, I, you know, medicine is the thing for me because it combines science and the human condition, the human experience. And so I decided very early that that's what I was going to do. And I wanted to be a, a research doctor, not just a medical doctor. So I pursued that. I pursued that very early I worked every summer at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, starting from the summer I graduated high school all the way through college and into medical school. I published my first papers out of those summer experiences. Then I went to Johns Hopkins Medical School, which was, which was fantastic, and a really research institution where research was highly valued. And very early in medical school, I decided I wanted to do cardiology. So I've always been very lucky that I've been able to know what I wanted to do early. That's really wonderful. I'm glad that you had those experiences at a young age and it really guided you to where you are. So, so then you um, went into academia. Yeah, I have not left academia. I think academia is the most exciting thing there, there is to do. I feel like I started academia on day one of medical school because I went to a research institute and I'm still a professor of medicine at the University of Miami. I, I think in a lot of academic settings, it can be difficult to learn about opportunities to take your research to market or to actually take research and apply it into populations. I think a lot of scientists working in academia, you know, they're, they're doing their basic research and they're really passionate about it. And they're writing these grants like, yes, this could be used in cancer but they're kind of maybe hoping that someone will just 
take that idea and, you know, do it, you know, for them. So, so how did you get into biotech? Yeah, you're absolutely correct that there's a lot of, I would say, cognitive dissonance between basic science in the laboratory and what's called technology transfer. One of the major things that was done in the United States, and this goes all the way back to 1980, was that the Congress of the United States recognized that there was a problem and that intellectual property was being squandered because if a scientist made a, an inventive discovery and published it before they filed a patent, they would obviate the intellectual property because once some, something's in the public domain, you can't patent it and then everybody can access it. Now, what, what everybody recognized at Congress and on the business community is that it's, it's intellectual property or IP that drives commercialization because an investor isn't going to invest in something that's in the public domain because then they can't get a return. The other thing that's important to know is that all medicines are generated through industry, not, not through academia. Universities are not-for-profit entities, and they are not set up to become companies and take on the risk that a company takes. So there's still a lot of tension between this. But in 1980, there was a law passed by Congress called the Bayh-Dole Act. And this was very, very important because you also have to remember that in the United States, the NIH funds billions and billions of dollars of taxpayer money every year to research universities. Now, the taxpayers of the United States want treatments to, as a result. So the law was passed that universities can and should patent their discoveries before the, before the results are published, and that they should set up technology transfer offices and go to investigators at the university, particularly the ones who have NIH grants, and make sure or help or assist that patentable material is, is being patented. Now the law holds, or I'm not sure if it's the law, but it's what's done. The university owns the patent, not the, invest, not the investigator. And their job is to license it and make sure that, that it gets put into the right hands. Now that's not as easy as it seems because you still have to convince investors to invest and they've got a lot of different choices. There's a lot of stuff coming out. But the long and short of it is the Bayh-Dole Act provides for universities patenting inventions and for universities licensing them to in industrial partners and gaining royalties that can be plowed back into the academic mission. That's what's supposed to happen. Now, it, in my case, I became the inventor and to an extent the investor because I, was, I helped start the company and I sought the investor. Now, that's also okay. And a university professor can, and the laws and the rules do allow, so long as the person is disclosing, and if you look at any of my papers, you'll see I disclose in every one of my papers that I am a co-founder of Longevron and own equity in Longevron. What made it all work was that I was, I was the person who made the inventions and then became the person on the other side who became the licensor. I uh, raised the money from investors to start the company as well. So that's the reason I think why it's, it's worked well. There's a lot of startups 
that really never get off the ground because they're undercapitalized in the beginning or the the right relationships between the inventors and the company aren't there. The companies that are really successful, if you look around the world and the country, there's some very successful startups. A great example is Moderna, right? Moderna, the company that made the one of the COVID vaccines, is a, is only ten years old. It's it's only, it's a startup. It's a startup that licensed technologies from universities and commercialized them. And the licenses and the patents and the IP is to use RNA as a drug. And they figured out it could be used as a vaccine. Uh, the companies that made CAR T therapy were all startups. The ones that are really successful are the ones that engage with the inventors and have the proper relationship with the universities that's going to be a win-win situation for the company, the university, and the inventor. And and I think that that is done better in some places than others. So, um, of course, San Francisco and, and various places in, in California and Silicon Valley, um, Boston, um, and, and Miami. Miami's a, definitely a growing hub for biotech, and I think universities in in those hubs tend to maybe encourage investigators more or educate them more about about these opportunities Uh, how have you felt being in miami um in in this biotech community biotech is is just a burgeoning field in in miami it's nowhere near boston or the bay area but you know there's a lot of smart people here you know there is the university of miami that has a lot of investigators and a lot of NIH funding. So there is a lot of opportunity here, but there's also not being in Boston or San Francisco. It can pose challenges to a startup. There's a lot of interest in this city from the, from the mayor's office and the governor's office to see South Florida become more of a, of a biotech hub. And I, I think it will. There are lots of areas that are growing and it's a huge part of the economy. It's a huge part of the investment base. Investors or you know, their investment firms that just specialize in biotech and study and understand biotech. I think it's very exciting. I think Miami's got a, a bright future. We're proud of the fact that I think Longevron is, if you just look at it on the basis of market cap, let's say, one of the most successful, if not the most successful spin out of the University of Miami. And so, you know, having something like Longevron based in Miami hopefully becomes a catalyst for other companies to also successfully launch and then go all the way to a public offering. So Longevron went public February of last year. And, uh, and this isn't the, the first biotech you founded, correct? You have also founded um, uh, Vestion and Heart Genomics. Can you tell me a little bit about those companies and your experiences there? It shows, in my view, how hard it is to get all of the pieces right. So some people think, oh, all we need is a patent. And if the patent's good, it will just automatically attract money and attract people. Like everything in life, everything requires hard work, connections, experience. Nothing that's worth anything just happens by itself. So Vestion and Heart Genomics were sort of my early attempts to learn how to do this correctly. And in both instances, 
we raised money, licensed the patents, but unfortunately never got to the point where a Longevron is, where the capitalization at Longevron and the infrastructure that was developed and the plan was just much more successful. So, so Vestion and Heart Genomics still exist. I wish, I wish them the very, very best, but they, they haven't become as successful as Longevron. They didn't get to the point of you know, being able to go public. They do have really good technologies, really good technologies, and I think there'll be opportunities to advance those technologies. What did you learn from those uh, early experiences? What were the most um, significant pieces of information that you would give maybe to a new founder who is looking to patent their technology and then try and take it to market? You have to go into this understanding that like anything you do, it requires a lot of hard work and that it, it just doesn't happen by itself. Uh, the other thing that's really important to understand is it's it's just as scientifically rigorous. You have to go through all of the same steps you do just in your academic lab, which is raise money and build a team and build a facility and take the technology forward. So it's it's very, very difficult. And you have to also learn and understand how investment economics work. You have to take on some knowledge of business and how things are valued. I always joke that I, I missed the finance lecture in medical school. Well, of course, they don't have a finance lecture in medical school, but you do have to understand finance. So the Bayh-Dole Act got us so far to say, okay, it's okay to patent, but then the people at universities still have some misconceptions. First of all, there's still a, somewhat of a stigma against it in some quarters, some research professors feel that, oh, it's dirty to go into the commercial space and they don't want to do it, that there's something wrong with it. And then there's, there's another side where people feel that they have just an incredibly unrealistic expectation of what something should be worth. So you've got to be able to understand the, the economics of that. You've got to seek out the right people to invest and you've got to understand enough about the deal terms, that the deal terms are fair and reasonable and will allow the idea to grow. Because at the end of the day, in my view, the key endpoint is the advancement of science. We, we worked all the way in the university to advance the science, and we're working on the, on the other side in the technological sphere to advance the science. Because it's only through correct science and accurate science that will get to effective treatments. The truth always wins out. So if anybody has falsified anything or cut any corners at any point of the way, it's going to come out. Rigorous science, rigorous, responsible science is critical at every step of the way. That's some really awesome advice and, and some great wisdom that you've shared with us today. Thank you so much for joining us today. I, I learned a lot. Wonderful, wonderful.